and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and you can always find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can also search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, or at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And as always, as content creators, it really helps us out if you give us a rating, if you, uh, you know, subscribe leave us a review whatever you feel like doing it really helps us out and we really appreciate it on today's episode we're going to be concluding the early Bergman marathon I'm very excited about this I hope you are too and I hope you're not just excited about it because I'm going to stop talking about Bergman because next week we're continuing Bergman we're just going into a different long form uh, kind of discussion with Matthew Sosi Uh, but for today I'm going to be doing my solo little thoughts slash reviews however you want to look at it on the last two early Bergman films, Summer with Monica from 1953 and Sawdust and Tinsel from the same year. And uh, after that, this is the special Father's Day episode. So for those of you who are fathers, happy Father's Day. For those of you who have had uh, conflicting relationships with your fathers or have had problematic ones, I know this is probably a hard day for you. And uh, on behalf of all fathers everywhere, I don't know how... Uh, nice this will be, but I apologize for this being a problematic uh, day. I, I fortunately have had a wonderful father, and um, I've invited him on to this episode. And uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff here. Okay, I'm not even going to tell you the movies. We're talking about like eight movies. Now, we don't talk long because Dad himself would say, well, I'm no critic. He'll say that every time, um, even though he can talk pretty well about movies, let me tell you. Um, I got it from somewhere, probably not him, but, you know, uh, but somewhere. All right. Anyways, my dad, Tom Glidden is going to be with us here soon. Some of you listening know him. Uh, so you'll have fun with that. For those of you who don't, I hope this is a good introduction to the man that brought you the man, which is me. Um, but first we're going to get into early Bergman and I'm going to start off early Bergman with summer with Monica. All right, Summer with Monica, everybody. 1953, directed by Ingmar Bergman, written by, I hope I say this right, Per Anders Fogelstrom. I don't know, or Per, maybe? I feel bad already, because I feel like I said that wrong. But it's written by Per Anders Fogelstrom, starring Harriet Anderson and Lars Ekborg. It was released February 9th, 1953, an original Swedish release, but the U.S. release was September 1st, 1955. A whole two years, uh, or actually two and a half years later. We'll get into why that was, or how that worked uh, here shortly. But Monica is a free-spirited young woman from Stockholm that falls in love with Harry, a young man on holiday for the summer. When she becomes pregnant, they are forced into a marriage, which begins to fall apart soon after they take up residence in a cramped little flat. We watch as the couple ebbs and flows through their marital ups and downs until the third act, which places us amidst a vicious quarrel. Now, as I mentioned before, the film was released in the U.S. two years after its premiere in Sweden, and during post-World War II, the post-World War II period, distributors were bringing in European films to the U.S., 
and the U.S. was in the middle of the production code, which spanned from 1934 to 1966, which I've talked about many times on here, and we had many, many limitations to what we could create here in the States. However, other countries did not have to adhere to those same rules. Uh, They had their own set of rules in some countries, you know, their own censorships, but a lot of them didn't have nearly as restricting um, uh, rules to follow. So distributors in the U.S. brought in far more daring content than we would normally see here uh, and make here. And that was the good stuff for the moneymakers, okay? At this time, exploitation filmmakers would sometimes bring in films from other countries, often recut them, dub them in English, and sometimes even change the score. Now, sex sells, and it did then too. Summer with Monica was brought over in 1955, as I mentioned before, and it was already a sexually daring movie, but the U.S. you know, renamed it Monica, the Story of a Bad Girl and it was pushed further in the sexual direction by the edits, highlighting its few nude scenes, as well as put an emphasis on the unfit mother themes throughout the fi- or toward the end of the film. Prior to the 1950s, the sexual exploitation movies were usually burlesque films, like Hollywood Burlesque in 1949, or The Naked Age in 1932, which was a nudist colony film, or the strange educational, quote-unquote, films like Devil's Harvest, The Devil's Weed, etc., Exploitation is often difficult to pinpoint because it's ever-changing due to the attempts to succeed financially by exploiting current trends, niche genres, or lurid content, and it broadened dramatically in the 60s and 70s. These were often B-pictures, and or B-movies as we call them, and we saw a lot of these that you know built large cult followings like black exploitation films, including Shaft, Foxy Brown, and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and sex exploitation movies like The Girl with the Magic Box or Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, etc. Of course, Roger Corman was a huge producer of such films, constantly exploiting the popular hot themes of the day to stay alive. There's a lot to unpack with that statement, so I'll leave it for another time because uh, I could go on about Roger Corman for a long time. Hopefully one day we'll just do a whole show on him. But the early exploitation films were much more focused, focusing on hot-button topics like drugs, sex, hygiene, the birthing process, venereal disease, etc. So, for example, after World War I, there were exploitations, uh, you know, some made by the government, some not, that dealt with venereal disease. Some were made to truly try to stamp out VD, and others saw them as a hot topic and made them to make money. Uh, In 1927, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, or the MPPDA, which later worked into the Hayes Code and became the Motion Picture Production Code, um, or was a group, a part of that, but the MPPDA created a list of do-nots and be-carefuls that basically highlighted things that should absolutely not be in U.S. films and should be carefully vetted first for the be-carefuls. These, these early exploitation movies were often emphasizing sex, drugs, and any of the topics I've mentioned before, but they were promoted as educational, with headlines on some of the posters that said, quote, real sex facts, end quote. Kroger Bab was a, quote, country boy with a shine," end quote, and, quote, America's fearless showman. He later became a film producer, and after his tremendous success with his film Mom and Dad in 1945, and building his name in Hollywood, he later released Monica, the story of a bad girl, 
And in some, Summer with Monica became an American exploitation film in 1955. Now, why did I tell you all of this? Because quite frankly, I think it's more interesting than the film. Now, it's not a bad film by any means. And in my view, uh, you know, I think Bergman recycles a lot of themes here, uh, except that he shows them through a lens through the lens of teenage lovers rather than, for example, you know, the surviving lover reminiscing on past love or a married couple that hate one another, etc. But the themes explored are better explored elsewhere in his filmography prior to this film, I would argue. So for me, Summer with Monica, unfortunately, you know, feels unimportant and ultimately unnecessary. But the big difference is the debut of Harriet Anderson in the Bergman film. She's a part of the Bergman troupe as we go on a little bit. Uh, the nudity and sexuality in the film were pretty, you know, uh, forward thinking, I guess you could say. And the intensity of the duo's love, the, the two main characters' love, uh, Monica and Harry, and their disdain at certain times in the film. Harriet Anderson is great here, of course. She has such an outgoing spirit as an actor that her characters tend to come alive in a way that I value, even if I don't like the characters themselves. And in this case, I don't. Monica is one of those characters, you know, I found her insufferable. And uh, Harry, who has many admirable traits, ends up being kind of a sexist sleaze, and <laughs> not a sleaze maybe, but he has his own problems, we'll just say that. And what sucks is I get it. He goes through some heavy shit here, and his character acts in a way I can understand, but I still don't like it as a narrative. Now that part cheapens it for me. Could this be due to the writing by uh, Fogelstrom? I'm not sure because I've not experienced any of his work, any of the other works he's done. But uh, I do know this. It pales in comparison to Bergman's writing that I've experienced, especially the Bergman-Gravinius collaboration, Summer Interlude. Now, I never thought in a million years I'd be praising Gravinius after I didn't like the first film that he did for Bergman. Uh, but man, Summer Interlude is a force to be reckoned with for me in terms of early Bergman. I do like other early Bergman films better, probably. Um, well, at least Smiles of a Summer Night. Uh, but man, I liked Summer Interlude a lot. Again, this is a competent film for sure, talking about Summer with Monica. Bergman shows off his directing chops as he grows into the international superpower he will become. Again, he teams up with cinematographer uh, Gunnar Fischer, or Gunnar Fischer, I don't know how to say it, I'm being stupid, but Gunnar Fischer, who had uh, worked on four other Bergman films prior, Port of Call, Thirst, To Joy, and one we didn't cover on the show, Waiting Women and would go on to do five more after uh, Monica, I believe. And Summer with Monica looks gorgeous. Not only was the direction and cinematography on point, but the restoration used by Criterion Collection in their Ingmar Bergman cinema box set is superb. Now, in sum, I gave Summer with Monica a three out of five. Its positive qualities definitely outweigh its negative for me. And though a lot of it feels recycled from Bergman's prior films... Uh, those aspects are mostly decent here still. You know, they're not bad. It's just we've seen it before, and I think it's been done better in other films. But I would say nothing overall is special with a lot of the themes uh, because of the recycling. 
If you've seen the film and agree or disagree, please hit me up at Austin Glidden on Twitter. You can also hit us up at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and MediumCoolPod at gmail.com if you'd like to email us your thoughts on Bergman's Summer with Monica. I'm going to go ahead and move on to a much better film, in my opinion, Sawdust and Tinsel. Sawdust and Tinsel from the same year as Summer with Monica, 1953. It was directed by Ingmar Bergman, starring, I'm going to try this again, Ake Gronberg. Ake Gronberg. I hope I'm saying that right. I love you, Ake. It's great. But Ake Gronberg, Harriet Anderson, uh, Hass Ekman, and Anders Ek. I'm probably butchering this. I like feel bad, like physically feel bad reading these names. But the release date was September 14th, 1953. The U.S. release was three years later on April 9th, 1956. Set in the turn of the 20th century Sweden, the film follows a circus troupe, but namely the complicated relationships between the circus ringmaster, the estranged wife, and his lover. I actually read someone say that it would be a good film if it didn't take place in a circus. Can you believe that? Others mentioned hating clowns as a reason for disliking the film. What's with the circus hate here, okay? I mean, I'm not like a big circus carny or something, which I think are probably two different things. But the point is, I'm not a big, like, circus folk, okay? But, the like, that ruins a movie? Others, uh, you know, these, these folks have to hate Fellini. That's all I say, but I digress. What these people might be missing is Bergman's influences here, which provides an immense amount of context that really built my enjoyment of the film. But that won't necessarily make a difference because a film is a film and should be critiqued on the merits of its final product. I agree. But I think Bergman's direction is a dominant reason why this picture doesn't clown around. Get it? (laughs) Anyways, it's good. Here's why. Ingmar Bergman has always been open about his ties to traditional Swedish cinema, namely that of the silent era with Victor Herström. Now, if that name rings a bell, you know, uh, it's because Herström acted in a few of Bergman's films, most famously Wild Strawberries from 1957, which Matthew Sosi and I will discuss uh, alongside Smiles of a Summer Night next week. Now, Herström... Uh, directed The Phantom Carriage from 1921, which uh, is a clear influence here. Some of the influences very obvious, such as the circus carriages uh, and wagons that are, you know, going cross-country here in Sawdust and Tinsel are are, uh, very similar to The Phantom's Carriage in The Phantom Carriage. But there is a brilliant, brilliant sequence with Anders Eck, who plays Frost, one of the circus clowns. Personally, I think Frost is the best performance in the entire film and is the backbone of the best scene in the film. Now, I say this so emphatically because there are a lot of Frost haters out there, okay? I think Frost is the best, and and there's a reason why pretty much every still frame from Sawdust and Tinsel is freaking Frost because his expressions are so great. And his performance is so great here. And if he's annoying to some people, maybe he's supposed to be. Just deal with it. Gosh. If you can't tell, I have a hard time with people who don't like this movie because I feel like all of their arguments are not worth it. Anyways, in a flashback, 
Frost is performing in a circus tent while his wife, who is also part of the troupe, is being humiliated by a large group of naval officers. They offer her money to get naked and swim with some of them in the ocean. And the film makes it very clear that the circus troupe is very poor. So, you know, eventually uh, the naval officers send one of their guys to Frost to inform him that his wife is bathing nude in the sun near the coast where the circus is set. And uh, probably just to, you know, push his buttons and to get him worked up and to see some drama. I mean, what else are they going to do, I guess? And he, uh, he being Frost, the clown rushes there to the coast and tries to cover up his wife by blocking her body with his body. The shots Bergman uses here are incredible. This entire flashback sequence is structured and executed like a silent film. You get you get uh, moments like Battleship Potemkin with some of these awesome close-ups and, and big shots of giant cannons and, uh, you know, use of montage. Uh, and, and from the lack of audible dialogue... Uh, which makes it like literally a silent sequence at times in terms of the dialogue, at least, where you see their mouths move, but you don't hear anything, even though there are other audible uh, cues. Uh, from that to the way that Bergman uses close-ups of people emoting uh, to the overall visual storytelling, it's absolutely brilliant. Anders Eck is perfect as Frost. And during the flashback that I just mentioned... His expressions speak absolute volumes. I think these are the signature scenes of the film, even though they aren't directly tied to the who we later realize are the protagonists. Uh, but man, like I think these really set up a lot of the film. Every time Anders Eck, uh, as Frost, has a pivotal moment, I think it is just one of the staples of the film. Now back to Victor Hustrum. Uh, Victor Herstrom was a great director, and as I said, he was in both To Joy and uh, later in Wild Strawberries with Bergman. Um, and not he was just an actor in those. But what's crazy is Sawdust and Tinsel clearly has probably the biggest influence by Herstrom. Because not only do we get like deliberate visual sequences that can relate to other visual sequences in Herstrom's films... But we also get Bergman's take on a lot of Erstrom's themes. Even creating a story about a clown who gets humiliated by the masses can directly be tied to Herstrom's He Who Gets Slapped, a silent picture from 1924 starring Alan Chaney. There's a clear influence on the narrative and visuals for sure. And I know I already said that, you know, the flashback doesn't directly tie into the protagonist. And all I meant by that was that Frost is not the protagonist here. It's the remaster and his lover. But the th like thematically, these flashbacks actually do tie into not only the ringmaster and his estranged wife and his lover, but also the entire circus troupe which is there to essentially, you know, dissect and and represent the idea of failing relationships. In The Phantom Carriage, uh, Victor Herstrom, you know, likes to explore things like a failing marriage. And we see themes about failing relationships throughout pretty much, if not all, at least most of Bergman's films up to this point. But unlike Victor Herstrom, who was more interested in how men hurt their families, uh, Bergman seems more interested in focusing on you know, the idea of people being broken. So by the end of Sawdust and Tinsel, we really see how broken everyone is, especially the ringmaster and his lover. 
But, you know, Bergman is much more interested in showing how not only men, but women also are broken and hurt themselves. But getting a bit further away from Herstrom, the ringmaster Albert and his lover Anne, played wonderfully by Harriet Anderson, are at the forefront of this film. And in the beginning, we start to see that Herstrom theme of men hurting their families by seeing a sobbing, crushed Anne who is upset that Albert wants to see his family and son after two years of absence due to the circus touring. But once we see Albert with his wife, we see that his wife is actually way happier than when she was with him, and she's more successful, independent, and mentally healthy. But what this does is also show us that Albert, you know, who, when with Anne, was perfectly fine not being around his wife, longs for her much more than he ever expected to when he's with her, and that feeling is unfortunately or fortunately, I guess, for the wife, unrequited. And, you know, it's things like this that really pick sawdust and tinsel up from, you know, just being a pretty-looking film uh, with some interesting directing choices to a film that really packs a much stronger punch. The visuals are awesome here. There are two cinematographers credited, uh, Hilding Blad, uh, already feeling guilty, Hilding Blad and Sven Nickvist. I feel pretty good about that one. But Bergman's vision is beautifully captured by these two men in stunning black and white, also beautiful due to the restoration used by the Criterion Collection. But the homage to Herstrom is not only perfect, but it's also executed with purpose, fitting the film to the extent that it no longer feels like a simple homage or pastiche, but it has its own life. The close-ups in the film are really powerful, and Bergman comes through here perfectly, namely the one of Frost carrying his wife through the rocky terrain where the camera has a close-up of him almost cutting his wife entirely out of it so you can see his humiliation and struggle, or the close-up of Frost yet again with a gun to his head, a popular still image that you can find really easily. Did I mention Frost is just the best? Like, I feel like if he were in the entire film, he would lose, you know, some some of the, the gusto, I feel, like he brings to the film. But using him so sparingly, and you'd never know it's seeing promotional material for this or, or, or stills because I feel like he's on everything. Uh, and a lot of people mistake that they think this is going to be about a clown, but it's actually not. But he is just the best. I can't be the first person to say this. Out of all of the early Bergman I've seen, especially the ones I've covered here, we've seen a lot of recurring themes or, or, or kind of narrative points. But Sawdust and Tinsel, though dealing with some of them, does them in such a new and fresh way compared to everything prior to it, um, especially when compared to something like Summer with Monica that came out the same year. Sawdust and Tinsel feels like a whole new thing. And though I love Summer Interlude, which I actually think I might like it just a little bit more, even though Sawdust and Tinsel is doing a whole lot more um, in terms of you know filmmaking, I just really think Summer Interlude is just is was surprisingly powerful to me. But man, Sawdust and Tinsel is the most unique of the early Bergman I've seen, kind of taking him into a different direction, showing us you know a new um, a new Bergman. Basically, this, I think, really kind of kickstarts a Bergman that maybe we won't see with Smiles of a Summer Night, but that we will start to see, you know, later down the line. Now, if you can't tell, even taking Frost out of it, I still really liked Sawdust and Tinsel. It has absolutely gorgeous visuals. Uh, you really start to see a, 
I feel like fully bloomed filmmaker here with Bergman, where he's do, using some really powerful cinematic techniques, both some of his own that he will master over time, but also you know hearkening back and paying homage to the traditional Swedish cinema that he loves so much and holds so dear, especially that of Victor Herström, a person that later became a friend. I think the film, both visually and audibly, is... Uh, really, really, really awesome, and 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 I I do understand why some people might not be into Sawdust and Tinsel. I could see this kind of being an outlier for some people because it does go in kind of a different territory. But man, I I, I really thought it was powerful. And then the performances uh, by the two leads, Harriet Anderson being one of them. Uh, those performances were really great, and I actually really loved the wife in this. But again, Anders Eck, the guy who plays Frost, was my favorite in the film, in large part because the film harkens back to that silent era, and he has such an expressive face, especially when he has the clown makeup on and everything. The scenes that he is in, I think, are really powerful. So all that to say, I gave Sawdust and Tinsel a 4 out of 5. I thought this was, uh, you know, this is definitely one of my favorites of this early Bergman marathon. And this is our final film in the marathon. This is number 7. And uh, yeah, we are done with this. We will be picking Bergman up in long form next for the next two weeks, bringing uh, radio personality from WFYI, from film sociology, Matthew Sosi is going to come on and talk Bergman with me. And we're going to be starting next week with Wild Strawberries and first, Smiles of a Summer Night. So definitely get ready for that. And uh, we're going to have a great time. So uh, without further ado, though, we're going to move on and we're going to, you know, celebrate Father's Day with my dad, a great dad. And uh, we're going to talk some movies. This is a rarity here, guys. I don't talk to my dad like all that much about movies. So this is very exciting. Here's my dad on about eight movies. Here we go. All right, everybody, I'm here today with my Faja uh, for the Father's Day episode. This is my dad, Tom Glidden. Dad, say hello. Hello. His hello was very short as I was drinking a little bit of my coffee. Um <clears throat> This has been a really exciting thing to do because, one, my dad and I very rarely... Well, we talk about movies, and usually it's you telling me, um, you know, about the 47th time you've seen Vacation, and then it's me telling you about a weird Bergman movie that you'll never watch. So, like... (laughs) That's about exactly right, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we talk about movies pretty regularly, uh, but we... Yeah, we haven't done this. So for the listeners at home, this is the Father's Day episode. I decided to have my dad on. I probably already said this in the intro, but uh, we're going to be breaking down a series of movies my dad sent me. He sent me a bunch. I actually ended up cutting them down. He had some pretty astute observations on a few of them. I'm pretty excited about it. Some of these I haven't seen in a while, so we're going to see how this goes. Uh, But the first movie on the list, we're just going to jump in. Are you ready? I'm ready. He's ready. All right. The first film goes all the way back to 1978. Now, Dad, you were born in 1963. Three. Okay, I got it. So in 1978, mm-hmm. you're 15 years old. Yep. Appro- approximately, depending on the time. Because this came out October 27, 1978. It was directed by John Carpenter, starring Donald Pleasance, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Tony Moran as Michael Myers. And uh, I'm not even going to break this down in synopsis because we've talked about this 
in our uh, top 15 horror movies last October. Um, and we've talked about this at length, but I did want to break this down a little bit and talk to you, Dad, uh, about this. Uh, I, w- I want to say a couple things before I lead you in here. Uh, <clears throat> Carpenter made a film called Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976, and uh, it was screened at the Milan Film Festival. And the producers who would later make Halloween sought out Carpenter because of that film to direct a film that they wanted to make about a psychotic killer that stalked babysitters, which is Halloween. And in an interview with Fangoria Magazine producer Erwin Yablins, good name, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, uh, correctly, but Erwin Yablins stated, I was thinking what would make sense in the horror genre, and what I wanted to do was make a picture that had the same impact as The Exorcist. Now, I wouldn't go as far as to say this, that Halloween's The Exorcist, personally. But it did have a substantial impact on the film industry going forward. So it was a huge deal and still is to this day. Dad, before we get into Halloween, did you ever see and when did you see the original Exorcist before we get into that? I did see it once, but it was later. So it was probably mid-20s or so. And uh, it was scarier to me because of uh, of just what it was about, because that was more closer to home of something that would terrify me. But uh, Halloween was just the first big scare of my life. Yeah. So, so you told me this before we before we started recording. You said this is the first scary movie you ever watched. How yep. did that go? Do you remember that experience? <laughs> well, I'm 15, and uh, I ride with some friends from down the street, and uh, we go into town and, of course, watch a late movie of it. And uh, I'm just a sissy at that age, so it just scared the living bejeebies out of me. And uh, then whenever we got back home, I was still six blocks from home and had to walk home <laughs> in the dark in the middle of the night. <laughs> And I was a mess by the time I got home. That That is a mirror of my story when I first saw the movie <laughs> Child's Play with Chucky. And I was at our, mm-hmm. our neighbors across the street, Amber and Amanda Baldridge. You remember the Baldridges? Mm-hmm. And they lived diagonal across the street from me. I used to hang out with them all the time. And they were watching Child's Play. But it was, it was Child's Play 3, I believe, because the opening of that movie is Chucky crawling across this, this prison or something. And he ends up putting a guy in an electric chair and electrocuting him. And Chucky was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. And I remember it was pitch black before I ran home. And I knew mm-hmm. I had to make it from the Baldridge's doorway to my doorway before this little puppet killed me. Yeah. Plus, I had a My All Buddy 40. doll in my room and looked yeah. the same. Anyways. All 40 yards from door to door. I know. You know, your six <laughs> blocks is way more terrifying. And I can't I can't imagine with Halloween how scary that would be because they didn't make movies like that prior in terms of widely accessible movies in the U.S. Yes, we had Friday we had Friday the 13th, of course, one and two by this. Or no, we didn't. No, we didn't. This is 78. Friday the 13th oh. was 80 and 81. So, uh, but prior to this, you know, we had the scary stuff like like The Exorcist, like we mentioned, which was a whole new level. And Jaws came out in 75, which though we watch it today and we don't see it as like a horror movie, it still follows all mm-hmm. the horror tropes. I mean, that movie was also mm-hmm. scary. Children get eaten by a shark and it's bloody. Mm-hmm. People forget about this. Mm-hmm. They just think about the the buddy, 
the buddy trip at the end when they go to kill the shark. This movie, that movie's scary. Jaws. But Halloween well, was a whole different game. As I was growing up uh, with my mom, uh, we didn't go to hardly any movies. The only movies I remember that we went to whenever I was young was Sound of Music, Jungle Book, and a couple of other kid ones. Well, then I started hanging out with these other people, and I was ready to start to try to become a you know a big time man. And so uh, I jumped right on the Halloween bus right off the bat, <laughs> and a big mistake at that time. Yeah, I mean it. It beats seeing The Exorcist at the age of ten yeah. or eleven or however old you would have uh, ten. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. Um, but anyway, so yeah, Halloween, uh, that was one you wanted to talk about. Uh, very exciting. Again, we've covered that. We don't need to talk about that much more, but I love the idea of you. I don't think of you watching horror movies. Uh, up until, I don't know, 10 years ago, I rarely did. And, uh, now I like a good horror movie and, um, most of them, you know, I can just sit through and it's just no big deal on anything. And they're typically not even scary. So some of the ones that you guys have talked about on your top 10 horror movie list, um, I've got wrote down. I'm going to try to start going through some of the better ones and uh, check them watch, out. But don't watch any of not. Joe's 11 through 15. You'll hate them. I'm not <laughs> saying they're bad. Yet. They're just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> all right. So this one's a bit more uh, hits home, though, moving on to this second movie here, because... Uh, this is a movie that you and I have talked about a lot, actually, and I think we have more to talk about here. It's directed by Bruce Joel Rubin, starring Michael Keaton, Nicole Kidman, Bradley Whitford, and Queen Latifah. It is my life. A, a forgot a long forgotten film. I feel like people I don't I literally don't know a single other person that's talked about it but you and me, probably. It was released November twelfth, yep. nineteen ninety-three. So we just jumped a you know, fifteen years or whatever uh, to get here. And for the listeners out there, I'm going chronologically through the movies that we wanted to talk about. And if you don't know what my life is, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. It didn't do great. I think it was number three the week it's it came out. I believe. I think it was number one in like Italy or something. Like, like you know, like abroad, it was like number one at some point. Um, but it it, did, it wasn't blowing people's minds. How I don't know because it seems like in 1993 this would have been kind of like at the very least some sort of like. Oscar bait kind of plot line. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, granted, if you look at the movies that came out this year, it's clear why it didn't get any award buzz because 93 was a pretty big year. A lot of good stuff. However, the synopsis for my life, it's uh, it follows Bob Jones, the most generic name ever played by Michael Keaton, who finds out he is terminally ill. He only has a matter of months to live and it will not be long enough to see his child be born. So he makes a series of videos to prepare for his death and help his future child learn not only who their who their father was, but learn valuable lessons from him. Um, there was actually another film, Dad. I don't know if I ever told you this. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's another film from 2003, so it came out 10 years later, that's very similar called My Life Without Me. It's about a 23-year-old woman played by Sarah Polly, uh, and during a medical visit, after a collapse that she has, she's diagnosed with a, uh, I don't know why I can't say this name right now, Metest met metastatic. It's it's bad terminal cancer, basically. Ovarian. I don't. I was saying it, it's metastasized, but whatever that conjugation 
of that word is. I don't know. Anyway, she, she finds out she has ovarian cancer that will kill her. And, uh, and I'm just going to have to reread all of this. I already messed this up. It's about a 23-year-old woman played by Sarah Polly, and during a medical visit after a collapse, she's diagnosed with ovarian cancer that is terminal and told that she has only two months to live, deciding not only or to not tell anyone of her condition and using the cover of anemia, Anne makes a list of things she wants to do before she dies, and the film pretty much just follows her trying to complete these goals before the end. Now, it's not the same as my life, but I remember when I saw my life, it reminded me of, or my life to live, or sorry, there's too many movies with my life in it, apparently. My life without me, when I saw that, I remember I could not stop thinking of my life because I watched it at your house. You had a VHS mm-hmm. of this thing. Now, mm-hmm. uh, in your notes, Dad, that you sent me for my life, which was the number one movie, you were ready to talk about this one. <laughs> you wrote notes that said, Dealing with relationships before death. Now, you and I have had a long history of conversations about death and how we want our legacy to be left. We talked about this after you watched Dick Johnson is Dead, after I gushed about it on the the, uh, episode that we talked about that. I mean, there's been a lot of these uh, movies that have led us to have this conversation. Why did you choose my life to discuss this topic? This movie... At the time I watched it, I was going through a lot of stuff and trying to kind of recreate myself into a better person. And you had asked me whenever I made this list to tell you the movies that ended up meaning something to me in my life. So instantly I thought of this because watching this, you never know when something's going to happen and you're going to die. And he had a lot of relationships he had to correct. He wasn't a great person when he was good. It was all work and, you know, he was okay with his wife, but his family, he had gave up on his family. He wasn't talking to any of them. He wasn't doing anything with anyone that actually means something in your life, or at least means a lot to me in my life. And to see him realizing that he is out of time, and ha- then he makes it the most important thing in what time he has left to try to better those relationships, to make up for mistakes that were done. It just meant the world to me at that time. And it kind of turned the way I started thinking about things. And uh, uh, I wasn't close to my dad when I was young. And uh, I'm not close to my mom when I'm old. And uh, to see him have to make up with his dad. And then at the end, his dad actually helps take care of him on his deathbed. Yeah. Just broke my heart. Yeah. This is, this is a, this is a classic. If you want to see Tom Glidden cry, this is your one chance. (laughs) Well, I'll admit most of these movies are kind of depressing. And the reason I like them, (laughs) they're all, they're all tear jerkers. Because they all mean something so personal to me in some way. 
Yeah, of my course. wife says that if if she ever comes in and sees me watching my life, it's time to grab the Prozac for me because she knows I'm really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, my life is at the, so. In I would have to watch it again. It's probably been fifteen years or something. I mean, or longer. Mm-hmm. Possibly, it could actually be for me, a thirty-six year old. I could actually possibly say it's been almost twenty years. I'm pretty sure I've watched it since then. I'm pretty sure I watched it again after I got into movies in 2003, but I don't remember that viewing. So the times I remember watching it are multiple times when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And and the the part that got me was this, because actually I had forgotten about the parts you just talked about, the correcting of relationships, which is really important. Yeah. And you're reminding me of that where I remember these things now. The part that stuck with me actually was his dedication to the unborn child. Now, this isn't necessarily going to be a spoil-free episode. I don't think we're going to talk about any one movie long enough to spoil it too bad. And I don't really think this is a spoiler. But my point is, like, you know, he does get to see his kid. And that was, like, so powerful. Yeah, he lives long enough, but not much longer. And, uh, but it's, it's like this idea of he's, he's trying to do good. So it's like, He's gifted this mm-hmm. time just to at least see he's mm-hmm. made it right. So he gets to see this one thing. But the whole time he's he does. I forget if he knows whether, uh, you know, it, it's going it's sex, whether it's going to be a boy or girl. But but he's, you know, teaching him how to shave in a video. Right. Yeah. Like he's taking all he these videos of, yeah. you know, what he he wants his kid to learn these things from him. And he wants his kid to have bedtime stories. So he's reading the stories on the camera, that camera mm-hmm. stuff. Get out of town. That stuff still is like just thinking about it, the most heartbreaking thing. Because those scenes aren't usually sad. There are a few of them that are. But they're usually pretty funny. They're like the comic relief moments because he's being silly. Uh, But those are like also simultaneously the most heartbreaking things to me because you know why he's doing it. Yeah, he uh, was explaining to his son how baseball works. Yeah. And going over all the routines of stuff, and uh, it that that's a good part. I mean, that was kind of the thread that held everything together in yeah. this. But unless he create, unless he rebuilt the relationships with everyone around him, those would not have been nearly as useful in the future with his son. There wouldn't have been as many people that would have thought how important that was for that child to see him yeah if he hadn't made everything better yeah goes to so show how much i, I went remember. with the relationships i went with the relationship yeah part. i think it's the better choice i mean the more i think about it I, yeah I, like i said i need to rewatch it if anybody out there's listening you've never heard of my life but you like michael keaton nicole kidman bradley whitford or queen latifah we got some latifah fans out there i'm sure Mm-hmm. Uh, go check out go check out my life from 1993 I, again i can't like recommend it because i don't remember it well enough in terms of like how much i liked it but i'm telling you at the very mm-hmm. least you're going to learn some life lessons if you go into it because there's some great stuff here this movie is the movie that created my bucket list oh That's wow the movie that started if i want to do if i want to accomplish what do i want to accomplish in my life so i created a bucket list and I went through it all through my whole life. And I mean, I took it pretty seriously. And uh, things that I wanted to make sure I did while I had time. And uh, this was the movie that started it all for me. And I tell all my kids, uh, 
you know, have a bucket list, go out and do something that you feel uncomfortable with or something that you'll always know then that you went beyond your comfort zone on stuff and that you can handle more than you think you can. I love bucket lists. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, pretty sure on your bucket list, skydiving was on there maybe. Yes, it was. Yeah. Was scuba diving on there? Yes, it was. Was was skiing? Everything and, I've done was skiing and breaking your back. One of them. <laughs> well, the skiing was the breaking of the back was just a bonus. No. <laughs> no, speaking of family, though, talking about telling your kids, my I have two brothers, <laughs> and and one of my brothers uh, is James, and he's he's the daredevil of the group. This kid jumped off a freaking building in in Las Vegas. This thing, how tall was this thing? Tell the story, because uh, I don't even know the whole story. The platform that he jumped off of, it was the Stratosphere in Vegas. And uh, the platform he jumped off of was 950 feet. And it was just a jump free fall. And uh, you're tethered in, but the line doesn't catch you until 100 feet from the ground. So you're just free falling down, and then it catches and slows you down. And whenever he went, he went with some friends of mine on a guy's trip. And... Uh, he told me, he said, I'm going to jump off that. And I said, there ain't no way you're going to jump off that. Whatever you see how high that is, you're crazy. And I'll be darned. All of a sudden, one night, I get a picture from my friend and he's suiting up. And then they they were all videoing it and telling me stuff. And I couldn't have been prouder of him. that He went beyond what he was scared of. And he did it. I'll tell you this. And it was terrifying when I watched it's it. It's terrifying, terrifying to watch. It's the worst. It is horrible. So for Christmas, I bought him his first skydiving, and uh, next month he's going to go and uh, do his first tandem jump uh, down in Indianapolis. Yeah, that's very cool. He's uh, he's mm-hmm. a wild one. This guy, this this James is the sweetest man you'll ever meet. Sweet, just the greatest kid. I call him a kid. He's an adult, but uh, but he's like ten years younger than me. Great kid, and uh, I love him to death. But I bring I bring up James. Because it ties into our next our next uh, movie here, and uh, for for everybody to know, as far the best we can the best I actually don't even know the whole story. We don't need to go into it. It's really uh, not important to what we're talking about. But uh, my brother is a, a little bit on the spectrum. I think he had Aspergers, and mm-hmm. um, so you know there are certain things he loves movies. You know, I would love to talk to him sometime, maybe do a little mini thing with him if he ever comes, stays with us or something, because uh, he loves movies. I can give him any movie to watch. Doesn't mean he'll like it, but he'll watch all of them. Dude just, like, gets on Netflix and watches anything. Um, he's, he's probably seen more movies than me. Now, the quality of those movies, I, so. I, can't, I, can't, <laughs> I can't speak for, but he's watched, I mean, if you, oh my gosh, listeners, if you saw what my brother watched, it'd, it'd be hilarious, but... Uh, he watches a lot of good stuff too, and you know it's just all over the place. This guy, um, but you know if he watches like Wes Anderson movies, like the Royal Tenenbaums, stuff, he just doesn't get the humor. He's like, I don't understand. But you put like fart jokes in there, and he'll crack up, you know, because it's easy. <laughs> you know, I'm not making fun of him. I'm just giving you some context for what this next movie is, because we're going to talk about Robert Zemeckis's Forrest Gump in 1994, starring Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, Gary Sinise, and Sally Field. Released July 6, 1994, and you know, the, the presidencies of Kennedy and Johnson, the Vietnam War, the Watergate scandal, and other historic events unfold from the perspective of an Alabama man with an IQ of 75 whose only desire is to be reunited with his childhood sweetheart. Uh, played by Robin Wood, by by the way, everybody. 
Uh, I often forget that. But the reason that I bring up my my brother James is uh, because, Dad, you you put reminds me of my son James as as your note yes. for this movie that means something to you. And clear, of course, I can I can project onto that and assume what you mean by that. But I'd like to hear in your own words, what do you mean by that? Why does it remind you of James? Go. Well, first of all, because he is on the lower end of the spectrum, and so was Forrest Gump to a point. I mean, he went and did things. They kind of fell into him. He didn't really plan on a lot of that stuff happening. And that's James's life. And uh, James can do anything. He could be great in the service. He could be great on anything that he wants to do. He's a runner. Forrest Gump's a runner. The reason they run is it's solo. They can get in their heads on things. And uh, all the things that Forrest Gump had to put up with, with people making fun of him, I saw James all growing up. That's all people did to oh, him. Yeah. And, and like Forrest, he never let it affect him. He just kept going on. And uh, Forrest Gump ended up successful. James has ended up fairly successful. And uh, whenever I watch it now, I just watch it with a different eye, uh, a more personal eye to watch it through and sure. uh, to, to see the success and the friendships um, just mean a lot because I also see those reflecting in my son. Yeah. Yeah. James, James was a runner and just to tie into Forrest Gump. I remember this one time we went to an Ironman competition that he did. He did this marathon where he just ran the whole thing. Dude, was he the first one? He did a mini marathon in Muncie that he ran. A, it was 13 and a half miles. That's what it was then. And yeah, and he uh, he finished. It was his first try. He'd never ran over seven miles prior to that. And he won his age of vision and two others around him. You know what's then, funny uh, though? He he come he comes over to us, and and my daughter's mom Melissa's there. And, and uh, he's like, hey, I'm going to go over here and get some water. Do you want anything? And she goes, yeah, I'll, I'll take this. He goes, okay. And he runs to the thing <laughs> after he just ran the marathon. He runs yeah, yeah. again. Gosh. Well, he did, a, he did a Forrest Gump, actually, in the uh, Ironman. He was in the biathlon of the Ironman, which is just run and bike. And uh, – he ran and ran, man. He was doing great, and he won his age division in that, too. However, he missed the finish line, and he ran an extra half a mile before they could catch him to have him turn around to go back to finish. <laughs> and he still won. That's funny. So, he's a machine, He's a monster. And he does. I don't feel he like is. he actually knows it. Like He'll joke like he does, like he's big and bad. But I don't think he actually knows how good he is at some no. of these things. It's very much like a, a Forrest Gump thing. Again, they're very, they are very different people. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, like for example, when James was made fun of, you know, he embraced that and made that a part of who he is. Like you, like you said, it di he didn't let it affect him, but also he allowed mm -hmm. himself to be proud of his idiosyncrasies and his weirdness, quote unquote. And when people would make fun of him, he would just lean into it. And I'll show you. Mm -hmm. And now he's just a, I mean, he's always been great, but I mean, he's just great. And Forrest Gump, on the other hand, didn't even really get that they were making fun of him. <laughs> you right. know, but, but it's I guess like, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But still, uh, yeah, I, 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 I can second everything you said in terms of the things I've seen 
Um, outside of that, though, how, how did you feel about Forrest Gump and when did you see it? Do you remember? Did you see it in the theaters or did you see it after it came out on video? No, I saw it after it came out on videos and uh, watched it. Uh, I don't remember what year, what time that was. And uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I The first time I watched it, I remember I found all the humor in it. That yeah. was the part that I followed. And then uh, as I got older and would rewatch it, then the more deeper parts of it would come through. And uh, it uh, just seeing, like I say, the comedy parts of it, just imagine this guy that can't do hardly anything was made fun of on everything succeeding in this way. What a great, what a great movie. Yeah. And uh, also, you know, Tom Hanks pops up on several of my oh, definitely. Uh, movies because uh, he is just somebody for my generation and hopefully others that I mean, anything he does is just great. He, does, he makes it into something that can be great. Isn't it funny that he started off as like a comedian? Like he did all these yeah, comedy things. Buddies. Yeah. Bosom buddies. And then and then he does a one, he, of, the, <laughs> one of the worst. The yeah, but then he worst. start then he does big and it changes his life. Anyways, these yeah. uh he, he you're right though, Tom Hanks is in your next three. Uh, or no, sorry, this one mm-hmm. and your next two choices. But I got to say this about Forrest Gump before we move on. I'll tell you the two parts that wreck me, okay? And I haven't seen this one in a while either, but I remember it pretty clearly. The first time he sees his son, Killer. and, and he's, he's sitting behind him, just him watching TV, and Forrest is standing behind little Forrest Jr., and he does this like kind of like very silent breakdown, like where he kind of starts to cry and he catches himself. Gets me every time. And then the other one is whenever yeah. he's at Jenny's grave, and it's not what he's saying because that's very that's very classic sad grave sure. stuff, okay? But it it's the way he says it. I don't care what he's saying; he could say anything. He could be talking about he, how he yeah. pooped that day, and I'm gonna cry because of the way he delivers the damn thing. Yeah. It's so great. And he stands with like his hands reverse on his hips, and I just love that. Oh my gosh, it looks yep. so natural. He's just the greatest. Uh, again, I haven't seen that yeah. in a while. I I go back and forth on that movie. I always like it, but I go back and forth on how much I like it. I think, like you said, it depends on the day because one day, like you said, I'll, I'll catch the humor or one day I'll catch yeah. this or I'll catch that and it just hits me different ways. So, I don't know. Um, I'd have to rewatch it and get an updated opinion. Matthew Sosi would say, and you guys will hear this on, the, on next week's episode, I guarantee but he would say he encourages you to watch all the great movies every five years. Not all of them, but like when you, whenever you're going to revisit it, watch them five years every five years because you'll grow in life and you'll gain a new yeah. perspective. So that's exactly right. Uh, I feel like Forrest Gump is one of those movies as well. Uh, speaking of Tom Hanks, though, we're going to move on to 1998, and uh, I'm going to tell a story about this. I was, I was, how old was I? Twelve years? No. Um, I was 13 years old. I was staying with my father. We were in Eaton, Indiana, sitting in the living room. And dad, right before you were about to take me to mom's house, you said, I got to show you the opening 12 minutes of this movie. <laughs> and so he puts what in this VHS. <laughs> he puts in this VHS 
of a movie called Saving Private Ryan from 1998, directed by Steven Spielberg, of course, starring, let me take a deep breath for this one, Tom Hanks, Matt Dillon, Tom Sizemore, Edward Burns, Barry Pepper, uh, Adam Goldberg, Vin Diesel, Giovanni Ribisi, James Davies, Ted Danson, Paul Giamatti, and Dennis Farina. Now, there are tons of other people, but these are the people that I specifically remember. came out July 24th, 1998, and it follows the Normandy landings, where a group of U.S. soldiers go behind enemy lines to retrieve a paratrooper whose brothers have been killed in action. And the context there is, if you have multiple siblings, if you are the last remaining siblings, the government will release you so that your bloodline can continue, basically. I'm paraphrasing. but So they're trying to find this guy. Now, the horrors of war unfold as the group travels a great distance for one man. Tom Hanks plays the lead as the reserved Captain Miller and uh, basically leads them on their journey. This film was nominated for 11 Oscars, winning five of them, including Best Cinematography and Best Director. Uh, in, in, your, in your note here, uh, you said realism of war, having to go through life proving your worth. Take nothing for granted. And I want to get to that in a second, but I want to say this before we get there. When I watched this at the age of 13, not only did I almost lose my lunch because my stomach just twisted into knots from violence I had never seen in my life, okay? Bullets making holes in people's faces and people aimlessly carrying their arms around. It was a terrifying moment. Only the Normandy scene, folks. As soon as that was over, it's like, all right, let's go to mom's. So anyways, this, uh, but this. I, w- I would never do that now. I can't believe that. No, it's great. I loved it because then I was that, dedicated to seeing it. Like it didn't actually traumatize just, me. I'm, I'm exaggerating shows, clearly. It at least shows growth. <laughs> uh, yeah. Evie's only got a couple more years and then it's no, first, first 12 no. minutes. Um, no, but that's all I saw for like a while. (laughs) And then eventually I watched the movie. I think I probably rented it. I don't think I watched it at your house. And I just, this was like my favorite movie after I saw it. I mean, you know, I wasn't into movies yet or anything like hardcore, but this one just really got me. And it took a long time for me to figure that out. It still is one of my favorite films of that year. I would love to go back and revisit it, but every time I've watched it, it's held up. Um, in terms of the at least the bulk of the movie, the stuff in the present day is a little whatever, but it only takes up like a minute and a half of the movie, it feels like. I mean, it's nothing in comparison yep. to the actual horrors that they experience in war and, and the brotherhood that they build and, and how, I mean, how many, I'm not asking you, Dad, but just in general, just rhetorical question, how many good, you know, like truly good Vin Diesel movies are there? Well, this is certainly the best one, I guarantee you know, like there are a few people I can talk about where it's like they've probably <laughs> he gave me the zero, like the <laughs> like zero with his hands. But um, no, like, the, you know, th- this takes people that you wouldn't think could be great. And they're just yeah. so great in this. But I got I got a second. I, I brought up that story just to bring up the realism of war thing. And I want to touch on each of these statements that you have, because you have realism of war having to go through life, proving your worth and taking nothing for granted. Those are three different things. But the realism yeah. of war, when you watch this, do you remember the first time you watched this? And what was that I realism? Do. Like, how did that impact you? Actually, this was one of the first movies I watched once we got surround sound. Wow. So 
I remember we used to uh, test whenever, this. Real quick, to this day, yeah. I still put this in to test my surround because the bullets yeah. and the, the opening bullets seeking. fly right by your head. So great. Yeah, it's just nuts. But this is one of those movies to me that, like you said in the last one, you watch it every five years and something different comes out in it. Because you had just said it was a great movie up till the present day stuff, that last minute and a half. Now, when I watch it, that last minute of the half means the world to me. It brings the whole movie into, into focus for me. So, yeah. But for the realism of war, back in those days, there was nothing like this. There was nothing that showed all this. And the, they actually showed and got across properly the fear that these people even had. No matter yeah. how heroic they are, you saw they were scared. You know, when these huge tanks are five feet from you and getting ready to blow you up, you're going to be scared. I don't care what it is. You know, they show people peeing their pants and stuff. I mean, that's what's going to happen. And uh, just the realism of it throughout the whole thing, they kept it so good that to me, it was just an iconic beginning of, a, of any other movie that had to do with war. And that's the one I will hold all movies up to, to know if they're any good. Yeah, it's that same year, and I'm not expecting you to have seen this nor liked it if you did. I don't know if you did. But the same year, 1998, Terrence Malick released The Thin Red Line. And why I like mm -hmm. both of these together is because Saving Private Ryan has a really great visual presence of the horrors of war. And all the things you mentioned, think about those as, yes, they were afraid, but it's all visual. You know, you're not really so much in their head as much as you're seeing them shake. Right. You're seeing them scared. You're seeing them pee their pants. You're seeing them fight for their lives. The Thin Red Line's the opposite. It's like three hours of a cast probably even bigger than this. It's a ridiculous cast as well. And it's all in their heads. Like, there is almost, mm -hmm. there's very little of that horror um, in terms of the visual stuff, you don't get those tanks mm -hmm. five feet from you. You know, it's not it's not like that, but it's very much in their heads and what it's like to be a part of this group and what they're thinking about when, you know, they've been shot or, you know, like those things. Mm -hmm. And I just love both of these movies together. I mean, a quick, quick trip to Bummerville if you watch both of them. But um, yeah, really, really, really great. Uh, the opening they sequence, though, real quick with realism. I remember that uh, now I, I want I want to recognize that if you have anybody who's been to war, OK, when you're talking about experience, they're the person you want to listen to because they've been there. Yeah. And, and, and but in terms of realism and overall war information, you know, they have a very specific experience in a very much larger issue or thing. Right. And these guys were like 80 plus whenever they were like in these documentaries talking about this movie. You know? So I don't know. And I, I'm not trying to demean anyone. I'm just trying to give context that I don't know actually truly how realistic it is. It feels real. And I stand by that. But there were veterans at the time from World War II that would back this movie up. And I remember one guy said that was all a lead into this one kind of semi quote paraphrase, I guess. This guy said, yeah, there was one kind of glaring inaccuracy. And they were asked, what was it? And he goes, the blood wasn't red enough in the water during yeah, Normandy. I heard that too. And it's just like a crazy thing to think of. You know what I mean? 
Uh, I don't know. It, th- that opening sequence, though, again, that was the thing that introduced me to the movie. It introduced everyone to the movie, I guess, because it's the opening. But it, it was the only thing I had seen, and I was like, I have to watch this. But the other one I want to bring up in terms of realism, it, it's less that I'm sure this did happen, but this is a very much kind of a manipulative bit here. But it hits, it's, it manipulates. I'm susceptible 100%. It's the, it's the knife slowly through the heart sequence toward the end. Uh. Is that just the worst? That is, well, <laughs> it's heart stabbing, obviously, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. But uh, but, uh, uh, however, and the cause of it, the guy that could have stopped it was twenty feet away, frozen in terror, and could do nothing, and then he had to live with that. For the rest of his life. Of course, the other guy didn't get to live at all. But what a horrible, horrible scene there in so many levels. And uh, it just breaks your heart. And uh, whenever I first watched it and that scene happened, that upset me for days. Yeah. That scene. And uh, now when I watch it, I'm trying to surround it with other parts of the movie to, to make it all add up better. But I mean, it's just a horrible, horrible scene. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it is hands down the moment that affects me the most in the movie because the opening Mm -hmm. sequence is kind of a visceral response that you get because it's so ultra violent from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But but it doesn't really carry any weight up to that point. It's just the opening, you know, like there's just so much glaring violence. It was such a huge scene. I mean, norm, the whole beach. Yeah, there's very I mean, little personal thing going on. It. Yeah. This other scene was one-on-one. They were battling hand-to-hand, and one of them was going to die. And it was just so personal. Yeah. Damn you, Jeremy Davies, for being scared. You had to kill Adam <laughs> Goldberg. Um, it, it, yeah. that, that seems crazy. And, and to make your point, again, because we do get... Again, I I've, I still stand by. I don't feel like we get in their heads as much, but you get definitely get that experiential aspect of them being afraid. And this is a perfect mm-hmm. example of that. Not only is James Jeremy Davies the medic, the guy that's frozen in fear. Mm-hmm. Not only do you see him just paralyzed, but also he wasn't see, a medic. Oh, what was he? He was. Oh, a, he was the ammo carrier. He guy. was a newscaster. That's I mean, right. he was a uh, uh, writer. And he got pulled in because he spoke German. That's right. But in that scene, wasn't he going to get ammo or something? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, uh, That's he what was I was running thinking. up. Yeah. Yeah. But he but he heard it and, and he heard it and he's walking he up the stairs so up slow, dude. That I gotta give Spielberg props there because the whole thing's edited and put together so perfectly. That sequence is so intense, and and yeah. not only do you see him scared though, but Adam Goldberg as the knife is so close and he's fighting him. And of course, you get a few push-offs where he musters up enough strength to back him off an inch. His fear is so palpable. I can't. I just can't not be afraid in that moment. It's almost scarier than yep. most horror movies I watch because that is just so scary. That is just one of the great scenes yeah. to me. Now it takes a lot of context, you know. I mean, because you get to know him the whole movie. But uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's it's brutal. And of all the uh, characters in the group that was left, he was the best one for that to happen to. It meant more having it happen to him than some of the others. 
because of how his character built throughout the whole movie. Yeah. It's, it's tough. And now, um, as I got older and like I say, bucket list and all this other stuff, um, whenever I watch the movie now, and once you see the end, the end ties the whole movie together because that man, Ryan, Ryan was having to, um, Ryan was having to live with all these people died because he lived. Yeah. And uh, he went through his whole life having them in his mind, make sure that he proved that he was worth it to them. And if you put that on a different picture, imagine everybody in your life, even up to your life uh, in your mid thirties that have gave you a break here or there, or that helped you with this or that, you know, a normal good person wants to make sure you make them proud or that you kind of pay it back. Right. You know, and uh, if you think of life that way, because I do now, if anyone does anything for me, I'll make sure that I exceed any goal that they had for that. And this movie kind of helped me uh, realize the importance of that. And it's just awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's... It- I want to clarify something about the the very op- the modern day the modern day stuff or whatever. I want to clarify one thing. Um, I have I have no issue with what it stands for because you really touched on the biggest part, you know, because it does tie the film together. You, you it's the bookend, right? The opening has Private Ryan as an old man. You don't know this yet, of course, and then uh, at the end it makes. His because he's in he's in the uh, what is it Arlington Cemetery or whatever, and yeah. and at the end it has such so much more weight because yeah. of where he is and because of who he is, yeah. and so like I, I think I think th- th- like on paper and thematically that's great. I need to rewatch it to have an updated opinion because the, the the ending always rubs me a little the wrong way for some reason. Not thematically, I think narratively it's. Perfect, um, but I'll have to I'll have to rewatch it though because I, I again I can't tell you why right now, which just means again back to that five years thing. I need to go back and yeah. and re-experience that thing and 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 have that. So uh, yeah, the the proving your worth thing. What about the taking nothing for granted that you wrote, or was that tied into what you just said? That was tied into what I said. Taking nothing for granted. Uh, anything that anyone does for you or anything that any door that opens for you you just can't take it for granted because you don't know who gave something up for you to have that and you always want to do the best yeah you know yeah yeah uh you touched on something we were talking about i I almost i had his name in my head and i already forgot it but the guy who speaks german jeremy davies character Mm-hmm. And I like I like that you talk about like how scared the people are, and you're thinking beyond this because mm-hmm. you got to think of it this way too. Just going back to this real quick, and not only the taking nothing for granted, but just all of these things, the proving your worth and all this is you know when I think of him, one he's clearly at, like 
I project this on because you don't know this. The film doesn't go here. But I always think of Jeremy Davies living the rest of his life like that, right? Like trying to prove himself and earn what, what he allowed to happen and all of the people that kind of kept him alive and died. But I also, at the same time, I can't say I would have done anything different. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not mm-hmm. saying what he did was right or wrong. I have, I'm not passing any kind of moral judgment on that at all. Um, but I want to think like, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's real easy for someone to go like, I would totally went up there and saved that guy. Bullshit. You because <laughs> that's, that's some right. scary shit right there. <laughs> that's right. I mean, it's just, you the have scariest. no idea. You have no idea what you would do in a situation like that. And the people that have to go through it, you just got to give them the props for the best they could do. You know, now, granted his wasn't the best that someone could have done. But it was the best he could do right then. His body just shut down. His mind shut down. Yeah. He just couldn't take it anymore. It was just too much for what he was able to do. And what I like talking about. He wasn't a soldier. Yeah. And what I like talking about with this is, is pinpointing this kind of lens to look through things. It's not about, because a lot of people would watch it and they wouldn't think beyond what happened. They'd just be like, ah, he's such a coward. And the problem is, like these movies are meant to be watched in a way where it's experiential and you're meant to put yourself in this situation and try to have empathy for these characters because that's the whole point. All of these characters inspire some level of empathy, especially in the way that they are all developed throughout the film and the way that they all die. Uh, so, you know, like Giovanna Rabisi, the medic, he's the medic, my bad. Uh, you know, him, him getting shot and having to tell them oh. what to look for. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, just... All of that's crazy. Like, think about what that would be like. This is what moving, watching movies is like, and should be like, mm-hmm. rather. And this is what makes movies meaningful, is having some level of empathy and being able to think beyond what you're being shown, because this movie is significantly less powerful if you can't think beyond your own perspective or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You know, another scene in it that's easily looked over or I did many times the first few times I watched it was the scene where Tom Hanks character finally tells his company what he did as a civilian. Yeah. Cause that was this huge thing that, uh, the captain had, he didn't have no mama. He didn't have anybody. He was, he was just raised in the army. You know, he had no heart, no anything. He was just military. And there was a pool, for whoever could guess what he really did. And whenever he finally, you know, all hell broke loose and everyone was ready to turn on everybody. And it was just horrible. You know, uh, the medic had just died and it was just terrible. And so finally he stopped and told him, you know, he was a school teacher and just no one could believe it. And the humanizing of him was so calming to all his people. And it even made him closer to him past that because sure. now they had something they could bond with him on. And um, that that was just a real cool scene, I thought. I think this is expertly made. And uh, like I said, I mean, it was nominated for 11 Oscars, which only means so much with me, but I think it was deserving. And it won five of them. And, you know, the, the best... The, the best of them all is the best director. I think Spielberg earned it that year. And the cinematography, yeah. of course, is incredible. 
Uh, man, just what what a what a powerfully visual movie. Uh, we're going. I want to move on to the last Tom Hanks movie. This is not the last movie we're talking about, <laughs> but the last Tom Hanks movie. One eighty. We're doing same year, folks. Oh my god! The yeah. same year. Tom Hanks makes Saving Private Ryan, and then it's about six, five or six months later, You've Got Mail is released, directed by <laughs> Nora Ephron, starring Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Greg Kinnear, Parker Posey, Steve Zahn, and Dave Chappelle. Not all of them are starring, but they have small roles, some of them. It's released December 18th, 1998. It was inspired by a 1937 Hungarian play called Parfum... Uh, I can say this, easy for me to say, though. Parfumery by Miklos Laszlo. And uh, basically, it's a remake of The Shop Around the Corner in 1940, starring Margaret Sullivan, James, Jimmy Stewart, our, our beloved Jimmy Stewart, and uh, Frank Morgan. It was directed by Ernest Lubitsch. So if you want to see another movie like You've Got Mail and you're a fan, go check out The Shop Around the Corner from 1940. Really good. Uh, now, the synopsis for You've Got Mail uh, is that it focuses on a bookstore owner, Joe Fox, played by Hanks, and an independent bookstore owner, Kathleen Kelly, played by Ryan, and uh, they fall in love in uh, in the anonymity of the internet, both blissfully unaware uh, that he's trying to put her out of business. This is like when AOL just started, you've got mail, mm-hmm. like that whole thing. If I'm cool, I'll remember to put the actual you've got yeah. mail sound in here. But anyways, uh, you know, it, it's funny because it's it's easy for you to tie this into modern day. Modern day would probably just be texts or something. <laughs> but like but it is like immediately yeah. aged by by <laughs> you've got mail. Yeah. You know, what I mean, like it's it is yeah. very of its time. I will say this though, yeah. a very cliché structure. However, I remember, and it's been a long time since I've seen this, because I liked this movie, actually. And I, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of modern romantic comedies. This one I liked, and it was largely because of the performances I thought were quite good, uh, from what I remember. But it's been a very long time. But you, whenever you sent me your list, you put, How to Deal with con- Conflicted Friends. I'm curious what you mean by that. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'll tell you. I've watched this movie probably hundreds of times. I don't know. It's just one of those I'll just put on sometime because I enjoy it so much. And I love the music in it. But, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's comedy. It's a love story like that. But the more I watch it, the more I strip it down to where, if you think about it, there's lots of people in your life that you don't like or don't like you because of whatever reason, but you kind of need them. And uh, Tom Hanks really structured his rebuilding to Meg Ryan really structured it out to where when it, by the time it came all the way around, she needed him, even though she hated him. And, uh, just by, uh, watching it that many times and seeing him do that and, uh, how it all came about. Uh, I actually have structured some different things that work in the same way. Uh, where I'll just turn it around a different way and approach them from a whole different side and start, you know, making them find things that are useful that they need. And uh, so it's more not personal friends as much as business friends that uh, I've found that this movie kind of triggered things in my head to lead me to approach conflicts in a different way. Yeah. People of my generation would remember AOL Instant Messenger. 
AIM, as we used to, as the cool kids used to call it back in the late '90s and early 2000s. And that was uh, my wife Amanda and I were just talking about that. Uh, I think just on like the drive home yesterday from where we were and stuff. Uh, maybe it was yesterday, or maybe it's Friday or Saturday. So one of the days we were driving, we were talking about AOL Instant Messenger and how excited you were when you got home to run to the computer and talk to people. But no one ever just put their name on there. Like it was always an alias, you know. And yeah. and Joe Fox in this movie. Granted, this is AOL like email. But still, Joe Fox, his name wasn't Joe Fox the book tycoon or whatever. Like, <laughs> like it was it was like something else no. where she had no idea it was him. And I, like I remember New York 529 or something like that. Yeah. And it's, you know, I what I liked about it when I saw it again, this is a long time ago. But what I liked about it was this idea of like, you have a reason to hate this person because ideologically you're opposed. He represents the corporate elite and you represent the small business holding him back from being a bigger elite. And, you know, like there, there's this very clear thing. But what I liked about it back then, and again, I would have to revisit this uh, to have an opinion and be able to recommend it. But I always liked that it was more to me about looking beyond the surface of a person and finding the true person within she finds out who Joe Fox is when he doesn't know she is his comp- competition, right? They both don't mm-hmm. know who each other is via email, but they start to fall in love with each other because there are these qualities that they like about one another and their qualities. They, their characters cannot show to one another in person because they are competitors because Joe Fox is trying mm-hmm. to take over this little bookshop and she hates him for it. And uh, so I always liked the, like, if you could just look past the thing that irritates you about this person, regardless of whether you'll like them or not, I don't care about that. The thing is, you'll at least be able to see them as a human being and not just a shark trying to take, you know, trying to take your business. Mm -hmm. And that was something that always stuck with me uh, about the film. And I I don't remember the music, but I remember liking it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't remember the songs, but I do remember having good music. It is just a little feel-good romantic comedy that uh, I just really enjoy. Yeah, more power to you. You know, you know what's not a romantic comedy? 1999's <laughs> The Matrix. That's the next one, written and directed by Lillian Lana Wachowski, starring Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, Hugo Weaving, and Joe Penaliano. And the release date was March 31st, 1999. And uh, this is, I mean, just the understatement of the century, this synopsis. When a beautiful stranger leads computer hacker Neo to a forbidding underworld, he discovers the shocking truth. The life he knows is the elaborate deception of an evil cyber intelligence. I'm sure we've seen uh, The Matrix. I don't really need to talk about this. If you haven't, go check it out. This is an undisputed classic. Regardless of whether one likes it or not, this really changed the game in many ways. Won four Oscars, all of which for production, but things including things such as best sound, you know, and stuff like that. This movie blew my <coughs> I just choked, almost died. This movie blew my mind in 1999. I didn't know mm-hmm. what to think. People make fun of people who saw The Matrix now. This is like, I mean, I don't think there's a big community, but when people talk about The Matrix, I do feel like people just make fun of people, like, people took this too seriously. I'm telling you right now, I saw this on, I I don't think I saw this in theaters, I can't remember, 
But I definitely saw it when uh, my grandma bought me a DVD player in 1999, and my mom bought me the the DVD when it came out for that Christmas of 99. So several months, like eight or nine months after uh, it came out. And I remember watching it. Maybe I did, did see it in theaters. I don't remember. But the point is, I remember watching it. And I just remember like being out and about afterwards and just being like, is this real? <laughs> like, like I was that susceptible guy where I'm like, I mean, how old was I? 14, uh, 15, something like that. And I'm just like, compl- I mean, I just couldn't think of anything the same way. And again, I could have just been a gullible teenager. Like, that's fine. But I yeah. had never watched a movie up to that point. Not saying those movies don't exist, but I, I personally had never watched a movie like this. And I've come now to find out that this movie really uh, borrowed a lot. I'll be gracious with that phrasing. Borrowed a lot from like Japanese anime movies and like all of these other foreign kind of uh, what would be maybe more obscure to like your casual moviegoer. But man, they brought them in, made this live action blockbuster extravaganza. I'm not a huge fan of the second and third movie personally. Uh, I think they have really awesome concepts but the execution of those concepts, I'm not a big fan. Mm. This movie stands alone on its own. You don't need the other two. Uh, this one was filmed by itself. The other two were filmed back to back. You know, I think this works because when you see Neo fly off at the end, they've already said he's the one. They've already told you what the one will do, and you don't need any more. Yep. Jesus has come back and yep. he is resurrected, and now we know. You yep. know what I mean? Like. It's it's that kind of well, idea, but I, I, w- I want to pass it off to you here though. Your note was well, oh go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, your your note to me was, and this is the astute observation I mentioned at the top: taking religion out of life and seeing it as a controllable program. Look at the big brain on yeah. dad. All right, so so. What does this mean? Because I, I'm going to be honest, I've never thought of this in my life. And when you sent this, I thought that, about it a uh, lot because it was interesting. It, uh, you know, the first one was a complete movie. They didn't need the other two, and the other two never will stand up to the first one. But on the first one, uh, I was coming out of a lot of religion, and, uh, you know, it was supposed to be what everything was. And then whenever you watch The Matrix and you see that, it could be a program. And then you start tying everything together on it. And uh, my wife said, whenever we watched it, we watched it on DVD also. Uh, and uh, she said, we watched it. And at the end, all I did was stare at the TV. And then I had to watch it again. And then I watched it several more times. And she said, every time it was almost mathematical after that of how I was watching the show and the parts I was looking for. And I was trying to see where the huge flaw was in the programming of it. But they really, in my eyes, and I'm no critic, but in how I saw it, they really did a good job at turning it around. And what they did was they took God and religion and everything out of life because it was a controllable program, a program that they could adjust and make whatever they want happen. Was that better? Was it worse? You know? You went from God being an almighty, omnipotent person to God being somebody in a program. Yeah. And uh, it uh, it just blew my mind that concept. I'd never I'd never acknowledged the possibility 
and not saying that that's true by any means, but the possibility of having that type of understanding of a show like that. And uh, it was just so cool. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's no secret to the listeners, if they've kept up with the podcast, that I grew up in a very religious household. Uh, less less because of you, Dad, and more because of uh, my other side of the family, where my grandfather was the pastor of the church, and <laughs> you know, my grandmother was the secretary, and my mom was the worship leader, and I, like everyone in my family went to this church growing up. So yeah, I like was half... definitely the low part of that ladder. <laughs> I do remember you staying home some Sundays, you big sinner. And I always wanted to stay with you. And then mom was like, no, you have to go. I love my mom. Oh, speaking of mom, quick caveat. I, 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 so when she gave me the Matrix, uh, I was like, mom, you guys see this movie. And she's like, okay. So she goes into my bedroom, my grandma's. And we, I put it on. And I make it about 15 minutes in. And I shut it off. She's like, why'd you shut it off? And I'm like, because you won't shut up. She just kept going, what's going yeah. on? Why did he do that? Wait, yep. hold on. Why is he saying that? It's like, dude, just watch the freaking movie. It's a, th- oh my gosh. Yep. I just shut it off. I was like, you can watch this by yourself. You can borrow it anytime you want. But uh, no, I love my mom. It, it's just, it's just a funny thing. That was just always how she was with movies, period. You know, if, if a movie didn't blatantly tell you what was going on, she's immediately asking questions and confused. But no, th- I, I had never thought of this, re- the religious aspect of this. And regardless of whether it was their intention or not, it doesn't matter. It's, a, it's an interpretation based on our life experiences. And so since you sent me this, like Friday or whenever it was, I've just, I, I've been thinking a lot about it, and I think about my perspective now on it. It makes me want to rewatch the movie, because whenever you were around the church that we were in, right, Grandpa's church, which still exists, but, it, like, God is everything, and everything that happens is a result of God or the devil, right, and and... I mean, just everything revolves around your faith, right? So when you look at the Matrix as faith, right, in God, it's interesting because whenever Neo takes the red pill or whatever, and whichever one, and he and he gets shot out of this, he he he's in he's in uh, what do they call it? Um, exvangelical, as they call it, not an evangelical, an exvangelical, and he he you know is thrust out of the church, so to speak. He sees the real world, right? And what he sees is if you are a believer the way that we were at this time in our lives, or at least that we were programmed to be, you you have this, uh, when you leave that comfort that you've been brought to believe, it can actually be a really grim, scary place. Because <laughs> yeah. you don't have this one thing that's supposed to protect you. And I'm not, I mean, it's not about like not believing in God anymore. It's believing in God a different way than you were taught, right? Or just not believing. I mean, yeah. atheism also is, is, is an option. But, you know, for me, it was less not believing in God anymore and more about uh, just like, wow, this isn't, like, this is a whole new life. This is just scary. And in the movie, Neo is in this really scary, like, world, you know, with all of these weird robots, like, trying to murder him. And they're they're constantly living day by day. But he's actually happier. That's what's crazy. Mm-hmm. He ends up being happier. And guess what he does? Then he can look back on the Matrix, and he can see it for what it is. Do you get mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Ever since you told me this, mm-hmm. I've just completely reevaluated my views. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's actually some sort of allegory for religion, but I think it works as such. I love it. What were you going to say? Yeah. Um, 
And if I'm not mistaken, the matrix was something that grew. It wasn't always there. So they didn't ever try to t compare anything to religion because full religion could have been at an earlier time prior to this matrix of being made because they say they had had several different matrix that people uh, could not handle and they failed. So it was all built up. So even these people that may have been very religious in a past, you know, they still think they are, although it's all been taken away from them because it is no longer. And it's just a cool thought. Which, which to get even deeper and darker, sorry, evangelicals listening to the show, but I would say that's what evangelicalism has done. <laughs> <laughs> the evangelicals don't even know that that their Christianity's been stripped from them. That is my cynical perspective. <laughs> I think this is just great. Generally, though, taking that out of it, though, how do you feel about the Matrix? Like, what do you like about it outside of it making you think this? You just said that this is just hands down a billion times better than the other ones. Like, why do yeah. you like this movie? Do you have any feelings about that? Well, I think uh, I'm not a big fan of many... Uh, sequels and uh, the reason being that if the first one works and it has the beginning middle and an end and they close it out real good whenever you add in those sequels even though you're trying to give more information and more depth to stuff a lot of times all you're doing is sucking the first one creating it to be parts of the second and third which take away from the first ones and that's what I think happened in this uh, the other two they were okay to watch, but they didn't have near the interest. Uh, I couldn't fault the storyline didn't mean anything to me on it. And uh, I didn't care nearly as much about the characters in the other ones. Yeah, I got to say this. The key master, whatever his name is, in the other one, mm -hmm. I love that concept. Like, it's no secret to listeners also that I play d and I just want to steal that idea. Have mm -hmm. this person that can take people through a weird you know, other dimensional door, like hallway that mm -hmm. will lead them to other places. Excuse me. I absolutely love that concept. I like the twins, the weird albino twins. I don't like them in the movie, but I like the concept of them. Like they're so interesting. They're like these weird matrix assassins or something, you know, like they're, yeah. they're very cool. And it's stuff like that. It's like, man, these are really cool ideas, but I just don't care about like the mm -hmm. only time you use these, these weird albino twins that are really cool concepts is during like a highway chase sequence. Like, come on, man. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. So, so we're, we're both, we're both in on that. The first one isn't great. I'll tell you another uh, franchise that um, I've only seen the first one, but I'm assuming probably goes down the same path. And that is taken jumping all the way to 2008 yes. directed by Pierre Morel, who is a French filmmaker and uh, it stars Liam Neeson, Maggie Grace, and Fimke Jensen. I think I said her name right. And uh, the release date, it premiered in France because it's technically by a French filmmaker. Uh, in February, uh, on February 16th, three days before my birthday, uh, 2008. And then the U.S. release was J January 30th, 2009, almost a year later. It's crazy. Um it's uh, about a retired CIA agent tra that travels across Europe and relies on his old skills, and according to the movie, has many of them, uh, to save his estranged daughter who has been kidnapped while on a trip to Paris. Uh, many called this at the time a born 
clone, like the Born Identity, Born Supremacy, like all those movies. It was like a Born clone because of how the camera work was. It was all like handheld, and the way that all the fight scenes were were very, and they were very similar. It was that type of movie. But I actually like this movie for its simplicity. I own mm-hmm. it. It's on my shelf. I don't think it's like this groundbreaking great thing, but I'm very entertained by no. it. It's very. It was very yeah. fun for me. And again, I'd have to go back. I haven't. I think I probably watched this on DVD and then I've owned it on Blu-ray and never watched it on Blu-ray. Like, I don't think I've ever watched this copy that I have, but I need to go back and watch it because I actually, during this time, there were several action movies similar to this that I actually was okay with. I had a pretty decent time with them. And then there were like none until something like John Wick or something that I was kind of into. But this movie, what I liked about it is it was simple. Okay, the production Mm -hmm. of the whole thing is very well done. I thought at the time. And then the story is literally this dude's daughter gets kidnapped and he has a particular set of skills that he's going to use to murder these folks to get his daughter back. That's it. And when he gets her back, the movie's over. Okay. Now, now talking about talking about your thing of whenever there's a beginning, middle and end, you don't need sequels. There's like three sequels to this. Now, hey, yo, yeah. I'm happy Neese, Liam Neeson's getting a paycheck. Don't get me wrong. But I haven't seen any of them, and I can't imagine them being that that good. I could be wrong. Listeners, if you like the other Taken movies, please hit me up at Austin Glidden on Twitter. I would love to hear about it because you need to give me a reason to watch them because I have no interest in watching them otherwise. But your your like note to me was a view of trafficking with a personal daughter at stake. And I'm curious... What you took away from this movie, clearly something related to that, if you could expand on that statement and broadly about what you like about the movie. Well, uh, first of all, I haven't seen the other Takens either. I have no interest in seeing them. Uh, Liam Neeson was a retired CIA that came back for his daughter. I can't imagine how many more times his daughter is going to get kidnapped that he needs to use those particular set of skills again. There's other people in the world. Yeah, and and, and even even if the people he killed, I'm sure the second one's like, those people are coming for him now, right? Like, I'm sure there's something like that. You're, it's never going to be as good as this. No, no, not at all. But the reason I... First of all, I just enjoyed it. It was a good little action movie. Uh, I don't need a ton of depth to enjoy a movie. And uh, um, the whole thing was just, I thought it was pretty well done as far as keeping me interested throughout the whole thing and just enough action. And at least they followed a decent path through the movie. But at that time, you knew in the back of your mind, people got kidnapped and there was trafficking things and stuff. But at least they did show a little more in depth of how it uh, how it works or what the girls have to go through, you know, the people that are kidnapped, what they go through, you know, to have to end up in that place that I'd never thought about before. Because sure. it doesn't really affect me here in Indiana that much. And uh, so I liked having that uh, that part of my brain opened up a little bit by that. And it was just enough to make me interested because you don't get a lot of depth in this movie on at all. <laughs> no, but, you get you get no. uh, you get uh, what do you call it? Um, the things that you use to jump your car. What do you call those? Jumper cables. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you get jumper cables attached to some dude's nuts. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, you, yeah. You, know, you know what this yeah, movie? Some good torture there. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> this yeah. is all post 9-11 stuff, too. So there's I, I could go on to a whole analysis of Taken. And I honestly haven't seen it since I've been able to do an analysis like that. So that's what part of the reason I would love to go back and revisit it, see how I feel. Uh, again, back to Matthew Sosi's every five years. You know, this is one of those I should probably revisit, even though it doesn't really fall into that category. But it's one I want to. But you know what? It remind a movie that reminded me of this movie and movies like it. And I think I made you watch this. Correct me if I'm wrong. But it was the Netflix movie Extraction from last year. It has yes. uh, Thor in it. Yeah, that guy. Yep. And um, what's his name? Chris Hemsworth. And it was directed by Sim uh, Sam Hargrave, and it was. Uh, Partially written the screenplay by uh, Joe Russo, who's one of the Russo brothers that's brought a lot of Marvel movies like the uh, the Avengers, the second Captain America, a lot of the good ones. Um, and uh, yeah, Extraction in the same way I thought was good. Again, the end of Extraction, mm-hmm. I think, is kind of becomes more of a cliche action thing and tries way too hard to be meaningful. But man, the tr- the journey along the way, I was pretty happy with just yep. as like what you said, not a lot of depth. Just something we can kind of sit back yeah. and enjoy. Hey, I think it's worth seeing. But I would kind of put action. Taken on that level, right? Where I think yeah. there are some pretty. When you can make, you know, a a, a sim like an older, not old, but an older Liam Neeson look that good. There's some camera exactly. tricks going on there, right? Exactly. All right. Exactly. But I guess he's good enough to do two or three more of them, so it didn't matter. And a whole slew of others. He had a whole lot of particular sets of skills. Um, and I'm not just talking about sequels. He did all kinds of other movies where he did the same thing. Did you ever yeah. see that wolf movie, Grey? No. Yeah. Got to be wild. I haven't seen it either. I need to watch it. Anyways, moving on real quick for the sake of time here. Um, the last main film that we're going to talk about, you sent me a bunch of them, but the last one we're going to talk about is Up, the Disney movie from 2009. I think we're going to have a good time talking about this because this movie wrecks me. Uh, Pete Doctor and Bob Peterson uh, co-directed this. Uh, stars uh, the 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 old man characters played by Ed Asner, who's always great. Oh my gosh! Uh, release was uh, May 29th, two thousand nine, and it's about a seventy year old man, Carl Fredrickson, travels to Paradise Falls in a in his house equipped with balloons. Yes, I said balloons, inadvertently taking him uh, a young stowaway along for the ride. His journey is inspired by the promises he and his late wife made when they were younger. And the note that you wrote to me was loss, learning to move on. Can you expand yes. on that for us? This is a sad uh, animated movie. I don't care. It's got a lot of funny stuff in it. But the overall, the overall moral of this, here's a man that lived with the woman of his dreams just his whole life and uh she dies he's old he's got nothing he doesn't know any other way and uh so he went to fulfill her last dream that they weren't able to do was go to paradise falls and so he takes off but he was the balloon salesman so of course in his mind the best way to do that is attach a billion balloons to his house and fly his house there and kidnap a, a Cub Scout <laughs> and on the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so he goes, but through the whole movie, all these other things come up with the little boy and the pets that end up coming up and stuff. And he didn't care. He didn't care at all. He just had that one thing focused. And then uh, near the end of the movie, of course, then he realizes 
you know, she's gone. He loved her. You know, it doesn't take anything away from her for him to move on. And, uh, you know, he ends up kind of taking, being the father figure for that little boy. And uh, what a great story, you know, just uh, the loss that he had to feel. And it's shown throughout the whole movie. And uh, with him aged on how the new technology and the way that the city was rebuilding and everything around him, it was just throwing him off on everything. Them trying to take him to a nursing home. It's just so real on so many levels, too, of what the aged have to put up with. And then he broke free of that. And then finally, near the end, he was able to break free of his mind and uh, accept. And that was a real good story. I really enjoy up. Yeah, that that first 15 minutes or so, that that could just be a short in and of itself. It's just the worst. Oh, my gosh. Evie, my daughter says she'll never watch this movie. It's too sad. Apparently, she's watched it My once granddaughter. before. Yeah. Well, apparently, it's once yeah. before uh, she's seen it <laughs> because she knows that it's sad. But I think it's just yeah. the first 15 minutes. If she can just get past that, I don't. I think she would have fun with the Gold Retriever and the Boy Scout, you know, Squirrel, like all that yeah. stuff. It's great. Uh, I, I think, but man, yeah. that, that, I mean, back to back, they did Wally before this, which I adore, and then they did Up. Back to back, mm-hmm. what a great back to back, just double feature right there. Both of which have their own level of sadness, um, and happiness, and and heart, and all, just it's just great. Uh, anything else about Up you want to mention? Uh, I don't think so. It's just you know, every, it just had so many things. It was so colorful. It was very colorful movie. And uh, the animals they had in there were weird to make them funny and such vivid and uh, just more than they ever could be. All the dogs and everything. And uh, it may be considered a kid's movie, but the underlying parts of it were very, very adult. Yeah, I mean, when Toy Story came out, you had a really great thing of like, they finally kind of mastered this idea of this is a kid's movie, but adults can enjoy this. Yes. And then, you know, Monsters, Inc., same thing. And they, they continue through. But I really think they found their perfect peak when they hit Wally and Up. I mean, these movies, mm-hmm. like, wow, what what powerful movies. Uh, that pretty much, that, that sums up the uh, the movies that we had planned to talk about, Dad. This has been great. Mm-hmm. Um, I guarantee the listeners have loved it. I'm just making up their mind f- for them. Um on that note, it is uh, two days past, but happy Father's Day. And Thank you, son. Uh, you know, thanks for being on the show. Do you have any fun dad Thank jokes you. to leave us off on off the top of your head? <laughs> Not off the top of my head. Dang it. But <laughs> All right. I'll just I'll find one on my wife's phone that she never shares with me, and I'll, I'll read it for them in the outro. But seriously, thanks a lot, Dad. Okay. Thank you. All right, everybody. We uh, we had a great time. That was so fun. I got to talk to my dad about a bunch of... Uh, I don't know why I say uh, father and dad weird in this episode, but I do. Um, so I guess, as I said earlier, my father... Uh, we, 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 we talked about eight movies. Joe and I could never do this. Joe, we could never do this. 
talked about Halloween. We talked about my life. We talked about Forrest Gump, Saving Private Ryan. You've got mail, the Matrix taken up. My goodness, we didn't even get around to the miscellaneous comedies that Dad wanted to talk about, like The Jerk, Airplane, Caddyshack, Dumb and Dumber, and all of the vacation movies, but European. He hates European vacation. Um, but we didn't get to go into that, but hey, I had a great time talking to him, especially Saving Private Ryan and The Matrix, actually. Those were just really, really fun. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. I hope you also enjoyed the Bergman, the early Bergman marathon that I've done for the past few weeks. Uh, seven films in total. We have completed it today with Summer with Monica and Sawdust and Tinsel. Next week, uh, I'm going to be talking with Matthew Sosi from Film Sociology on WFYI. And we're going to start our long-form Ingmar Bergman marathon, which is going to be talking about kind of the, the bangers that he's put out. you know, And, and all seven of the films we're going to be doing there uh, have also been kind of hand-picked by Matthew Sosi. And then hopefully, and, and, and I don't have this set in stone yet, but hopefully on the last episode, once we talk about the seventh, maybe Matthew and I can do our you know top ten favorite Bergman or something, or top five, doesn't matter. The point is we'll do something to kind of, you know, in Bergman proper after, you know, 75 years since his first film, you know, they still live on. All that to say, I've had a great time with this episode. I hope you folks have too. Please let us know at Medium Coupon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But until then... I love you, good night, good luck, and take it easy. You thought I forgot about dad jokes for Father's Day? Are you kidding me? Yeah, here are a few from my dad. So I locked myself out of the house today, and I shouted through the letterbox to my cat to let me in. He said, me? How? Get it? Meow? <laughs> Next, my wife said I should do lunges to stay in shape. <laughs> That'd be a big step forward. <laughs> I know, I know. And what do you call a wreath made of $100 bills? Aretha Franklin's. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>